Hello and welcome to Science Conversations, a series examining the intersection of science and faith. I'm Dr Barry Harker and my guest today is Dr John Ashton. This is my 11th conversation with Dr Ashton based upon his book Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. Last time Dr Ashton discussed carbon-14 dating and outlined problems with the Big Bang model. Today, Dr. Ashton is going to review the work of a number of scientists who believe. Dr. Ashton is a chemist with a PhD in epistemology, a branch of philosophy dealing with the nature of knowledge and truth. Welcome again, John. Good to be here, Barry. John, you've presented some pretty compelling evidence that life on Earth is relatively recent, yet you're not alone in doing this. Tell me about some of the scientists like you who are speaking out on this issue. Yes, I think that the evidence um, that evolution is impossible and that the Big Bang theory can't explain uh, the origin of the universe has grown to such a level that now uh, a number of scientists are, are pointing out these uh, the flaws in these theories. Uh, for example, uh, Dean Kenyon, uh, Professor Dean Kenyon, is Emeritus Professor of Biology at San Francisco State University, and I think I mentioned earlier he uh, wrote one of the first textbooks trying to explain the origin of life. Uh, it was called Chemical Predestination. And as he continued his research and uh, was confronted with some of the, the questions and, and challenges that are associated with evolution theory, he came to realise it was absolutely impossible for life to have formed from non-living molecules. And he uh, speaks out uh, on that now quite strongly. Um, there are a number of YouTube videos where he's done interviews um, uh, presenting his views and the reasons why, uh, from a, a scientific and biochemistry point of view, evolution is absolutely impossible. Uh, he also mentions that a number of his colleagues are not very happy uh, with him uh, doing this, uh, but of course he is such a, a senior scientist that um, he can uh, go, uh, go ahead with this and uh, he doesn't have to uh, worry about um, you know, the sort of grants being cut off or, or this sort of thing. So it's not career suicide or no. anything for him? <laughs> no, which it probably would be for many uh, younger scientists, unfortunately, because you know the uh, major academies of science uh, around the world have come out with statements essentially along the lines that evolution is now regarded as a as a fact. A another very That's ironic, isn't it, given the evidence that we've reviewed? Well, yes, it, it certainly is an, an eye-opener, and I, I guess uh, many people m who are listening may be thinking, well, with all this evidence, how come it's still being taught in our schools and and so forth? Well, there's a, a lot of uh, political pressure to, to do so, and I think the political pressure is simply along the lines to keep, they want to keep God out of the classroom, because the only other explanation for how we came to be here um, is, is creation, is the involvement of God, a super intelligent, all-powerful, uh, self-existing uh, uh, cause for these things. Um, 
And so, uh, but as I said, other other very senior chemists, as uh, I mentioned before, I think James M. Tour, uh, who's uh, uh, one of the most highly cited chemists in the world. That means that his research is quoted by other scientists uh, very frequently, and as I said, in the field of chemistry, perhaps more frequently than any other chemist at the present time. And he his specialisation is building molecules, and he's says, he points out and he says, sure, you know, these small evolutionary changes that we see, um, yes, they can be explained quite easily on the basis of chemical mutations and the loss of chemical code, but um, I can't see how the codes can be built up chemically to uh, produce uh, the the new body parts, macroevolution. And he states that publicly on his website, and I, I understand he's also signed a, a public document dissenting from um, the uh, Darwinian evolution theory or supporting that theory, uh, dissenting from that. Uh, just here in Australia, we have... Um, uh, Dr. John Hartnett, um, who got his um, PhD in physics from the University of Western Australia, is currently a, a research uh, professor at the University of Adelaide. Um, for a number of years, he was a research professor at the University of Western Australia. And uh, he has a, uh, a website, um, johnhartnett.org, in which he puts up a lot of the scientific evidence why uh, the Big Bang um, you know, it was impossible. Can't explain the structures that we see in the universe. Um, Warren Grubb, uh, Professor Warren Grubb, he's an emeritus professor at uh, Curtin University. I think he did Western the foreword to your book, didn't he? That's right, he did the foreword to um, my book, Evolution Impossible. And his area of specialisation is uh, the evolution of antibiotic resistance in staphylococcobacteria. And he... Um, he, again, recognises, sure, these, these microevolutionary changes occur, but not the, not the macroevolution, not the type of evolution that uh, generally, the people generally understand as uh, the Darwinian theory of how we came to be here, how you know, fish evolved into amphibians and amphibians into reptiles and reptiles into birds and mammals and, and so forth. So, um, yeah, so, the, you know, I, matter of fact, I'm, I'm very interested in, in data. I'm very interested in confronting um, the, the challenges that are made to, to creationists uh, because of people say, well, you know, you don't, you don't have data. Where is the data? And a few years ago at Macquarie University, uh, a group uh, from one of the creation um, scientific uh, groups put on a seminar at Macquarie University presenting evidence for creation and why evolution was impossible. And as I recall, um, Dr Alex Ritchie, uh, the curator at the Sydney Museum at the time, was at that uh, seminar and he asked a question along or made a, a statement at the end of the program, something along the lines that... Um, that uh, he didn't believe that any practising scientist with a PhD would believe in a literal six-day creation. And I was later told about this, and I decided, well, why not write to scientists who believe in creation and ask them why? And that way we're getting data. 
And uh, so I began, one of the first people I contacted was uh, Professor Warren Grubb, and he gave me the names of uh, other uh, scientists that he knew, uh, mainly biochemists and biologists, of course, because that was his area. And I wrote to these, and then whenever I wrote to them, I would ask them if they were interested in replying to my question, and also if they knew of other people. And so this way, very quickly... I was given the the names of, I think at the time was over 80 uh, scientists around the world uh, in different countries. And so I, uh, fortunately it was a time when email was just taking off in the late 1990s and I, I contacted these people by email, often followed up with a phone call and spoke to them personally. I got about... Um, I think uh, nearly 70 uh, actual articles sent to me explaining, and I put uh, 50 of these together. Then that became the book In Six Days, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. Now, I noticed some of my detractors in their comments on the internet would say that I picked out the the best uh, 50 arguments, and, and well, that isn't actually correct. Um, there were many really great arguments um, uh, papers that were sent to me, but their word count was too long. There might have been like five or six thousand words. And again, if they were in, and if they had uh, publications out, for example, like Dr. Dwayne Gisher, a uh, University of uh, California, Berkeley trained biochemist, uh, he'd written quite a number of books um, providing evidence that really challenged evolution. So I didn't include, uh, you know, his article. So and uh, in actual fact, I, I included uh, a, a mixture of articles so that they fitted into my maximum word count of 120,000 words. But that was just what they came. I just asked them why they chose to believe in the literal six-day creation for life on Earth. And... Um, and this is their honest answer. And so there were 50 highly qualified scientists, all with their PhDs, that, um, uh, that gave their reasons. And there were some pretty, uh, you know, there were a lot of top scientists uh, that contributed to that. For example, Professor David Gower, and he uh, served as uh, Emeritus Professor of uh, Steroid Biochemistry at the University of London. He holds both a, a PhD plus a DSC, so that's two doctorates. You need to explain the higher doctorate. Yes, that's right. So a doctorate of science is awarded after for people who usually hold a PhD, a doctor in philosophy, in their particular area of field, and then for special outstanding specialist research in that particular area, they are then awarded a Doctor of Science degree. So he holds both those degrees, and um, and again, he's he's a biochemist, and he specialises in this area of worldwide recognition. And this is what he actually wrote um, in his essay. During the past three decades, a great deal of work has been done and published in the field of creation research. This has stimulated me to criticise evolutionary theory in three areas that are of particular interest to me. So this is uh, Professor David Gower writing from the University of London. My chemical knowledge has allowed me to understand the criticisms of isotopic dating methods for rock samples and to realise that there are enormous problems with the interpretation of the data. 
Consequently, my own view is that rocks are nowhere near as old as they are alleged to be. So here again, that corroborates what I was saying earlier um, in when we discussed radiometric dating. Then his second point is, from the biochemical point of view, the idea that amino acids, sugars, etc., and some of the vital building blocks for proteins and deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA, could be formed simply by interaction of electrical discharges with a primitive reducing type atmosphere can be criticised in so many ways and so many levels. And then his third point is, my own studies... In numerous biochemical control mechanisms, especially in the control of steroid hormone formation, for which I was awarded the higher doctorate DSC, convinced me that all these processes are ordered precisely. This order and extraordinary complexity are entirely consistent, in my own opinion, with the existence of a creator who himself must be capable of creating such design. He goes on to say such complexity is also being found in virtually every other branch of science in general and is especially evident in the field of nature. Far from pointing towards the formation by the chance processes of evolution, this clearly speaks to me of an almighty creator. So there we have one of the eminent biochemists in the world uh, speaking out there. And, uh, you know, another biochemist, and I've stayed in his house, is uh, Professor John Kramer. Um, He was one of the lead uh, research scientists with uh, Agriculture, Agri-Food Canada, um, with his PhD in biochemistry from the University of Minnesota. And he was one of the core scientists that evaluated the toxicology of canola and uh, many other uh, projects. And, uh, and he points out no one has ever demonstrated macroevolutionary changes on the, a molecular level. Yet many people readily speculate evolutionary links between bacteria, plants, animals and man. And he says, are the gross structures not made up of individual cells with complex molecules? If macroevolution is unlikely on a molecular level, how can the whole be changed? Endless DNA sequence comparisons do not explain evolutionary development. Furthermore, the changes or mutations observed on a molecular level, such as DNA, are predominantly disruptive and always with a loss of not gain in information and complexity. And he goes on to give a whole lot of examples in his own area of uh, speciality, which is uh, resolved with lipid research. And that's what you were stressing through the conversations, wasn't it? The, the fact that if you can't get the changes at the level of the cell, then you're not going to get those macro changes. Exactly. And, and, and all these changes, these mutations that uh, biologists you know, talk about and the pro-evolutionary biologists talk about, they, re- they are underpinned by chemistry. And these guys are brilliant chemists. They are cutting-edge chemists in the world. And what they're saying is our knowledge of chemistry says evolution is impossible. Are they able to get this into the journals? Barry, one of the uh, scientists who has been successful in in publishing a a research paper uh, supporting creation is Dr. Andy McIntosh. he is, holds a DSC in mathematics from the University of Wales, as well as his PhD, of course. And um, 
He is a professor of thermodynamics and combustion theory at the University of uh, Leeds. Um, so his, uh, partic- his speciality is uh, in the area of thermodynamics. Uh, but as I said, he's a mathematician and he looks at the mathematical equations behind this. But one of the things he's always been interested in is the defence mechanism of the bombardier beetle, um, which um, relates to uh, you know, some of the principles relate to jet engine designs. But he also points out that you've got two uh, very unstable uh, chemicals that are stored separately, and once they are mixed, they produce this explosion. So he uh, points out, you know, how could something like that evolve by chance? You know, it would destroy itself on the way. But um, in 2009, uh, Dr. McIntosh published a groundbreaking research paper in the International Journal of Design and and um, Echodynamics. Now, this journal uh, is one of the journals where they look at design in nature to sort of help them solve engineering problems because in many instances, nature is far ahead in its design of, uh, you know, our best engineering technologies. And uh, so this is why to think that, you know, these amazing designs in nature could arise by chance to me is just so ludicrous. When we have our top engineers in the world studying designs in nature to get clue as to how we, clues as to how we can solve engineering problems. And um, he published a paper in that journal in which he showed that biological structures contain coded instructions that are not defined by the matter and energy of the molecules carrying this information. Therefore, the genetic information required to code for complex structures like proteins requires information to come from external sources of information and cannot arise from natural environmental forces. And so, in other words, this information has a distinct non-material nature that cannot arise as a result of some input of random energy. So this research paper actually provided very powerful support from the concept of an external superintelligent designer being responsible for the complex information contained in each type of living organism. So it was actually um, a very, very fundamental paper that actually refutes that the information and design, say in DNA, can occur from natural random processes. It has to have a non-material source and this is very important. But I know from talking to him, he had a lot of difficulty getting that paper through, even though he's probably one of the world's top mathematicians and a brilliant scientist. And so this is the opposition that these sort of people... Um, so the, the, there is a criticism that people who believe in creation don't publish in the journals. Yes, well, one of the reasons is that, you know, they get closed down. They don't get through the peer review system because all the leading journals are peer reviewed. And, you know, no major journal is going to these days publish anything that, um, you know, obviously goes against the theory of evolution. In fact, and so all the people that I've talked about so far that uh, have spoken out, they they all believe in, in creation. They um, and they and they're all believers in God. I mean, I I published a, a paper in Chemistry Australia back in um, two double oh seven, and the and and it was called a creationist view of the intelligent design debate, and I listed my sources, 
And the instant that that um, journal article uh, was circulated, there were responses from leading evolutionists in Australia saying that the Royal Australian Chemical Institute should not have published my paper. Um, they, they didn't give any scientific reasons for it. They didn't cite any references. They just said should not have been done, should not have been allowed. So this is the... What was the outcome of that? What well, was the long-term outcome? <laughs> well, the outcome was that uh, they deleted my paper from the um, electronic version of the journal. Of course, they couldn't recall the journal. It had already gone out to libraries and everything. Uh, and uh, that was in April 2007, if people want to look it up. Were there any uh, kickbacks to the editor? Uh, yes, the editor was forced to apologise. I rang him up because I, you know, I knew him. I'd spoken to him. My paper was a peer-reviewed paper, and it was actually published as a feature article, and it was in response to an article um, criticising those people who believe in intelligent design, and arguing along the lines that if we uh, allowed uh, intelligent design to be taught in schools, then we should. We'd have to also allow astrology, spoon bending, you know, and flat earth theories to be thought, which is absolutely ridiculous. It's a massive amount of evidence for creation. Matter of fact, in my view, the creation worldview can be used to predict outcomes because what we say is that nature is designed with a purpose. And when we begin looking for a purpose in nature, we actually find clues. Like a, a classic example is most of the fruits are high in sugar, but they are also really high in antioxidants. And if we take sugarcane, for example, we've refined, we've processed the sugarcane, we've made pure white, 99.9% sucrose, without realising that when God made it, he put it there with a whole lot of antioxidants and compounds that we now know slow the release of sugars into the bloodstream and provide the antioxidants that protect the damage that sugar would do in the bloodstream. But we've been blinded to God as a designer, you know, separated it out and have been ignorant to that. It's only recently now that we're discovering the benefits of all these other compounds that were there that God put there with the sugar to make sugar, whole sugar cane, a good food. People that eat whole sugar cane don't get dental caries and have perfect orthodontal development from chewing the, the sugar cane. So, and, and there are countless examples. Uh, matter of fact, I published those in a book called The Perils of Progress. It was published by the University of New South Wales Press, Zed Books in the UK, um, University of Cape Town Press, number of university presses, in which I pointed out that there was a blueprint for health in nature if only we would look for it. And the basis of that was that we were designed, the whole environmental system was designed for health. Sure, it's become disrupted now, as we understand, with pollution and, of course, sin, people fighting one another. But when we drilled down, we could predict major problems in environmental health issues um, by ignoring the fact that there was actually a plan and a blueprint in nature and applying our technology to overcome nature in a way that wasn't in harmony with that purpose of nature. Hmm. I find it really interesting that uh, the concept of intelligence is invoked in science, and yet it appears that blind nature is able to perform feats of engineering and design that 
baffle the, the greatest minds of our age. Oh, yes. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's so much research that's been done, isn't there, from the sort of design of, sulfur, uh, of dolphins and their sonar systems, um, you know, flight in uh, different um, animals uh, has been studied. There, there's just uh, so much. Uh, and as I said, this uh, particular journal, the International Journal of Design and Nature and Ecodynamics, uh, you know, summarised a lot of this uh, research that is being done today. So mm. science is actually mimicking nature in an effort to improve systems. Yes, so we're, was, we're looking seem... for design in nature and structure and saying, oh, wow, okay, so that's how it's done, and we copy it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, yet we, and yet we say that it all just happened by chance. All this happened by chance, yes. There's certainly, you know, we, you know I, I think the average person with a reasonable amount of common sense can see it's absolutely impossible. These structures haven't arisen by chance. John, They're got, brilliant in their design. I got my copy of In Six mm. Days from a secular bookshop. Mm. How did you manage that? Because... Most bookshops that um, you know put creationist material on the shelves hmm. are going to get a response, aren't they? So what happened in that case? Yes, well, In Six Days uh, was well received by the, um, the publisher New Holland and it was a very successful book um, because, um, as I said, we, the contributors were top scientists uh, from around the world. Um, there was um, John uh, Baumgardner, uh, who um, worked at uh, the uh, Los Alamos uh, National Laboratory, um, and um, he was a, a geophysicist who'd um, uh, worked on designs or, or a thermodynamic modelling of the Earth's mantle, um, and as well, he had studied at uh, Princeton University as well. And um, he, he provided a lot of uh, evidence um, with regard to uh, radiometric dating and also the uh, probability calculations for, for life on Earth um, and, uh, and the geological structures in, uh, and so forth in terms of the flood. Uh, there was another geophysicist, Dr. Kerr Thompson. Uh, he'd been um, uh, the former uh, director of the US Air Force Terrestrial Sciences Research Laboratory. I mean, these are really you know, top scientists uh, that had uh, c- contributed to the book. Um, again, uh, all creationists, all pointing, uh, all believing in young Earth, six-day creation. And I think that uh, to, the, no other book had put this together. What sort of reaction did you get and other people get who, who appeared in your book? Is there an ongoing... Issue well, with their yeah, careers, sure. Or? The, the the book went through a number of printings uh, here in Australia. It sold very well. Um, it attracted uh, several major newspaper feature articles. Uh, so this was uh, in in Sunday syndicated Sunday papers around Australia uh, carried articles on it. Uh, but there was a backlash from other authors because um, New Holland. Uh, public, they're, a, they're a top publisher. They publish a lot of books in the area of natural history. And um, 
you know, like Birds of Australia and these sort of things. And uh, my understanding is that uh, a number of uh, other authors complained to the publishers that they didn't want to be associated with a, um, a publisher that was publishing evidence for creation. And so as a result, um, New Holland relinquished the rights and uh, the book is now published by Master Books in the in the US. So their issue was with the fact that it was evidence for creation, not the fact that it was evidence. The publishers were were very comfortable with the book. It was these were top scientists uh, from around the world that contributed. The book was selling really well, um, but uh, they decided to to give up the rights. Uh, under the uh, the pressure, as I said, from other authors. <laughs> they obviously want to uh, have the other authors uh, continue to, to write for them. And, of course, New Holland continues today as a strong publisher producing really good material. Well, full marks to them for actually publishing it in the first place. Yes, yes. In hindsight, it was a very brave uh, thing to do. Um, but it meant that the book really got out there. And, of course, there's a German edition of the book. There's an Italian uh, editions of the book. Uh, the book's been published in Portuguese. So, um, Are you planning to update it? Uh, no, it, it's still a very, very strong seller on Amazon. Um, over 120 reviews on Amazon. Um, I think, see, <laughs> the this. People who contributed to this book weren't, weren't put up. They didn't have to write on, on anything. They were allowed to be just themselves, to be honest. This is why I believe. And they, their, their evidence is powerful. Well, you weren't leading them in any way, No, no, no. This is just what they said. And it's interesting, you know, the, there are, some of the detractors attempt to downplay this. For example, if you uh, Google... Um, well, uh, Richard Dawkins did a review of the book, um, and I think the title of the essay might be An Honest Creationist or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he, in my view, attempts to discredit the book by saying, well, look, some of the contributors can, uh, trained at church-based university or church-affiliated universities. Well, from memory, I think only 10 of the 50 trained at, <laughs> at uh, church-affiliated universities. Um, but not all those universities would be creationist universities anyway, would they? Uh, well, probably all the, all the ones that... Um, all the contributors that contributed to the book probably did come from uh, universities or, or um, had studied at universities. But as I said, it was only 10 of the 50. The other 40 um, didn't. <laughs> so, mm. you know, there's, mm. still, there's still plenty there. And as I said, you know, the, uh, a number of the scientists are, are really, really top uh, uh, scientists that, um, you know, that uh, – Contributed. Um, are their numbers growing? I mean, are there more scientists coming across to this point of view? Oh, I'm sure there are. Yes, I mean, the, when you look on uh, some of the websites around, the the lists uh, are much higher. Now, one some some people have criticised, for example. Well, hang on, some of the people that contributed to your book were say mechanical engineers like Jeremy Waters, uh, Jeremy Walter. Now. He is head of the Engineering Analysis and Design Department within the Energy, Science and Power Systems Division at the Applied Research Laboratory at Pennsylvania State University. 
and uh, he's been the leader for a number of undersea propulsion development projects for the US Navy. And when you read his his history, he he was one of the top uh, high school students in the US when he when he finished school, and he went on to uh, study uh, engineering at Penn State University. And um, he's, he'd probably be ranked as one of the top engineers in the United States. Now, people say, well, OK, this guy's an engineer. How can he comment about, you know, creation and evolution? You know, how can he uh, criticise evolution? And the point is this. I, I've met this guy. I've stayed in his house. These guys are extremely clever. They have extremely deep powers of comprehension. They, they studied science, general science, as part of their courses. They can read biology textbooks just as well as many other people. This is one of the things that I think people miss. These top scientists have very deep powers of comprehension. They can understand what does this mean. And they're also brilliant at maths. They can do the calculations. They can understand probability. They can understand... And we looked at those reactions. issues, didn't we, during the series That's of conversations. Right. And these guys can read. They can understand science. They are very familiar with, um, with the assumptions that are made and understanding assumptions. When you're designing propulsion systems for nuclear submarines and so forth, you have to be spot on. You can't make mistakes. And this is the calibre of people that we're talking about here. These guys are absolutely precise. And when they read the biology literature, they see the flaws and they see the major. And there were a number of other uh, uh, scientists in that uh, Penn State engineering uh, department who were um, uh, creationists. They saw the major problems with evolutionary theory. And so that's why... um, you know, I, I don't believe that claim that, you know, oh, some of these people are engineers or they're physicists or something, what would they know? Most of the people that I know that are top in these hard science fields like engineering, physics and so forth, they are very, very clever people. They have very deep powers of comprehension. But as we go through the book, there were other guys like Jerry Bergman who had, uh, you know, several PhDs <laughs> and uh, in the area of biology. And he actually has uh, put out a book studying the persecution uh, and made a case study of uh, scientists and, and particularly science teachers in the US that lost their positions and... Um, Scientists that lost their research funding as a result of publicly coming out and saying they supported um, creation. Um, That's not the picture that we get of science as a disinterested um, pursuit of truth, this relentless pursuit of truth and and, uh, evidence. That's not the picture that's coming through Mm. from what you're telling me. No, well, that's that's right. no, I'm not saying that all scientists are like that, but I'm simply saying that there is an issue here with the perception of science as a disinterested pursuit of truth and the sort of behaviour that you're describing to me. Well, that, that's true. I mean, there, there's a very powerful political evidence 
a, a, a fraction to, to science. And this is why when you get these statements by these Academy of Sciences, they don't, uh, in support of their statements, they don't cite research papers published in the journals of nature and science. They just make these assertions. So it's just dogma, really. Yes, and they make you know, assertions that you know, uh, you know, scientists b- believe uh, in, um, in evolution. Well, the claim is um, that, that religion's about dogma. But well, what you're describing to me fits the picture of Oh, dogma. very much so. I mean, there, there's, there's, you know, as we've discussed previously, there's no hard evidence for the evolution of new types of animals uh, and, new, and new body parts. But there's overwhelming evidence that it's absolutely impossible. Mm. And, and in the book um, you know, that I present here uh, uh, are some of the calculations uh, that are done. And independently, see, these scientists that contributed to In Six Days, they didn't collaborate. They worked totally independently. And they often produced similar articles um, in, the, in, in their... Um, in their in their papers, another uh, another uh, biologist was um, was Henry Zuhl, and he he wrote a, a very interesting article. Matter of fact, the um, the publisher of New Holland thought this her, his article was brilliant, and he pointed out that um, for living systems you need ecosystems, and so there's so much interdependence within living systems that the evolutionary structure that proposed um, just wouldn't, wouldn't work. And the other, other explain guys... The, explain the ecosystem a little bit more. Well, the ecosystem is where you've got a balance between sort of plants and animals and bacteria, and you have things like the nitrogen cycle that involves all those things. Um, you need that cycle to be in place to produce the nitrogen requirements, to produce the protein, uh, and yet that requires bacteria, plants and animals. So, you know, there's lots of things like that where you have to So have there's an interdependency inter- there. Huge interdependency, and yet many of these things occurred at totally different phases in the, um, in the so-called evolutionary paradigm. Mm. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you're listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr. John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. John has been discussing the work of scientists who believe, like himself, that creation is the best explanation for the evidence that we see. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, John will continue his discussion of scientists who believe. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio Within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 2 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abn That is radio at the number 3abn Australia, all one word, org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc, PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support.
If you've just joined us, I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you're listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr. John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. John has been discussing the work of scientists who believe, and who, like himself, are speaking out about the serious anomalies in evolution. For the remainder of our time today, John will continue his discussion of scientists who believe. John, can you tell me if there are other scientists who are writing books like you around these issues? Oh, yes, certainly. And uh, that, that material is, um, is, is being widely uh, circulated. Um, so, and as well, people are putting material out on uh, their websites. Like, for example, I've already mentioned James M. Tour. On his uh, uh, website, uh, he ha- he has this material. Um, we've got uh, Dr. Robert Herriman. He was a performer, professor of mathematics at the United States Naval Academy. And I think he was at one stage one of the highest ranking uh, mathematicians in the uh, US. Um, and he has a website where he puts up very detailed scientific arguments against uh, evolution and in support of recent creation. So there are people putting these uh, up on the, on the internet and as I mentioned, uh, John Hartnett uh, earlier with his website, johnhartnett.org. Uh, another uh, scientist that stands out is Dr. John Sanford. Uh, he holds a PhD in plant genetics from the University of Wisconsin in Madison and uh, also served an associate professor at Cornell University for more than 20 years um, and was uh, a co-inventor of the gene gun for facilitating genetic engineering. Now, he authored the book Genetic Entropy and the Mystery of the Genome, in which he provides the evidence that argues that mutations consistently destroy genetic information and do not create new information. Now, one of the important aspects that Dr. Sanford raises is that from the mutation research that they have been doing in recent times, we can actually put an upper limit on the age for life on Earth. And that upper limit is actually 100,000 years, absolute max, and most likely 10,000 years on the basis of a reasonable interpretation of the data. And he also provides really compelling theoretical evidence that whole genomes cannot evolve up the evolutionary tree. And he actually provides this evolution, uh, this evidence based on evolution and modelling uh, that, the, uh, that refutes the evolutionary premise that uh, different life forms are merely the result of mutations and natural selection. So um, that and, and that book is is selling quite well uh, again on Amazon. Um, another uh, author is um, uh, Professor Walter Vyth. Uh, he contributed to In Six Days as well. He holds a PhD in zoology from the University of Cape Town and uh, was uh, chairman of the Department of Zoology at the University of Western Cape. And he uh, later wrote a book, The Genesis Conflict, Putting the Pieces Together. And he explains how the fossil record does not support the theory of evolution and how many modern discoveries in biology and zoology support creation, not evolution. So here, as I said, is a, a zoology professor who was head of his department. 
Um, and I understand, yes, he put that book out after contributing to, to In Six Days. Um, but you're not getting this information through newspapers or science writing particularly? No, There's well, he, he has his own uh, – Walter Weith now has his own uh, television programs as well. He has uh, resigned from his university positions and he's essentially devoted his life now to publicly uh, presenting the evidence why evolution is impossible Mm, in creation. And he's very highly qualified to do that. I mean, he was one of the few South Africans to win um, grants from the um, Royal Society, for example. So his – and his research uh, was in the area of fishes, for uh, fish uh, zoology from from memory. So – um, yes, yeah, a very highly regarded researcher who now, as I said, um, uh, well, he wasn't always a creationist, by the way. He became a creationist. And, and he is so impressed now with the evidence for creation that this now is his life work to travel around the world and, and do television programs presenting firsthand the evidence for creation. And he's you know, just as well qualified as um, Richard Dawkins is. So even though this material is being published and it's available on the net um, or you can get it through Amazon, it doesn't seem to be impacting on the science writing that no, I, it's not that getting into our schools. It's not getting into public schools, that's for sure. But mm. that will happen in time, I guess. Well, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. I can't speculate on that. But I think the point is that you've got top scientists, right, educated in the field, who are coming out on paper and putting their evidence down for everyone to see. And it's out there. And it's more accessible now on the internet, isn't it? And it's it's on the it's on the internet as so well. And yet, still, our education system is stubbornly holding no. We have to teach children that everything can be explained by material science. In fact, it can't be explained by material mm. science. Mm. There is overwhelming evidence for a creator, for a designer, and and I think for purpose of our lives here. And this is and this is why it is so important. We. We aren't the result of random mutations and that where some ape-life ancestor slowly changed and became us. We were create, we, all the evidence points to the fact that we were created special, with special brains that can understand creation. We can understand laws. You know, dogs and monkeys can't understand the laws of thermodynamics or Newton's laws of motion. They can't, but our human brain can. We're programmed to be able to do that. And we're de- designed to be able to, to do that in, in the way our brain is designed. And there's overwhelming evidence that we are here for a purpose. Just like we see purpose in nature, there's a purpose for our lives. But this access to this, uh, to me, by teaching people that we just evolved, by teaching that you know the, the, the universe came about by just some random thing, and trying to push God out of the picture, I think is doing a major disservice, especially to young people, because in my view, if we look at the evidence, we can see there truly is a God. And the evidence is, too, that it's a loving God, despite you know, what some people say about all the tooth and claw. When we look through the picture, we can see there's, there's two conflicts going on here. There's a conflict between good and evil. You know, we see it in our society every day. There are people that are doing really good things, and there are people that are doing really bad things. And 
there's a there's a higher there's a higher dimension to this. I, I think we there's we we have a conscience. There's there's something that talks to us. Well, at least this is what I experience, and most of my children and family that are people I talk to experiences this. There's something when you're doing something wrong. There's something that says you're doing something wrong. Mm. Where did that come from? But what I see, science education is saying, no, keep that keep that away. Particularly in origins, every other area of science, it's fine. You know, physics, chemistry, general biology, it's fine. But when it comes to origin, oh no, keep God out. Whereas in actual fact, I think if people were made aware, we have overwhelming evidence for the existence of God. More people are going to take time to find Him, to come to know Him. And from my, my reading of the Bible, and when you think about the Bible, you know, it was written by forty-something authors. Um, who all relate their experience with God and have recorded it for us, saying it's very real and that if we seek for God, God finds us. He's a loving God and he changed our lives. And I think, you know, that's that's my experience. That's the experience when I've talked to so many of the contributors to books like In Six Days, um, that the, these people are changed. They're, they are beautiful people when you talk to them. They're highly intelligent people, and you can see they have had an experience with a loving God that has changed them to become. And that's where we're going in our next well. conversation, isn't it? In, yes, into that, into yes. That Give us some more, some yes. more authors. Yes, sure. Well, uh, Dwayne Gish, uh, he uh, got his PhD in biochemistry from the University of California in Berkeley, which would be one of the top state universities in the US. Uh, worked for many years in medical biochemistry uh, research, both at uh, UC Berkeley and uh, at Cornell. And he was uh, uh, published one of the books that I wrote, uh, read earlier on, very convincing and powerful book called Evolution, The Fossils Say No. Um, and then he published the book Evolution, uh, The Challenge of the Fossil Record, and he argues that there's a lack of scientific evidence for the evolutionary intermediate species uh, in the fossil record. As a matter of fact, I heard him debate um, at uh, the Hobart City Hall. I uh, was in Tasmania at the time and I went along and he debated from memory, was the professor of zoology or it might have been one of the professors from uh, within the medical faculty. It might have been the professor of anatomy, actually, I, I think, from memory now. The professor from the university, really what he spoke about was a bit of a joke. And when Dwayne Gish got up, he just spoke so well. He prevented, presented one piece of evidence after another, after another, after another. It, it, it was powerful. He, he won the debate hands down. But I'll, I'll tell you a very interesting experience, just a, just a personal experience, that um, the, I, I, my, uh, my first career job was as a cadet physicist at the BHP uh, Research Laboratories and the guy I was working for, uh, Dr Neil Gray, he'd just uh, come from uh, London University and he was a Christian and he uh, attempted witness to me. But it was only just recently that I found out that he was a creationist. Now, after leaving the BHP Research Laboratories, he took up a position at Melbourne University, which, as you know, is Australia's highest-ranking university. And I think he went on to become the Professor of Metallurgy there. But... Um, he was, uh, uh, I met him uh, again, caught up with him fairly recently. And what I didn't know was that not long after working at the University of Melbourne, uh, when Dwayne Gish, Dr. Dwayne Gish, was travelling through Australia giving these lectures, um, he organised for Dwayne Gish to speak at the University of Melbourne. And it was attended by a huge number 
of people attended. But after that, he received a note from uh, the department saying, if you, won't, if you want to keep your job, don't organise anything like this again. Now, they're not the exact words, obviously, but that was back in the 70s. Hmm. There was censorship. And here we have a top scientist being told, don't bring a creationist into the university. <laughs> but, of course, at the University of Melbourne, in one of my other books, The God Factor, um, uh, one of the former professors of physics at the University of Melbourne contributed, and he was a great believer in God. So within the universities, despite what some of the officials might try to do, there are, uh, you know, there are strong believers. But there are many others, like Dr. George Javer, who's Professor of Biochemistry at Loma Linda University School of Medicine, which was famous for carrying out the, the uh, first successful child heart transplant, and... Uh, he earned his PhD in biochemistry from Columbia University, and he authored the book Evidence for Creation, Natural Mysteries Evolution Cannot Explain. And again, he's a brilliant biochemist, and he explains how, from a biochemical perspective, evolution is impossible. So here we have these top chemists in the world trained at top universities. Um, George Davis spent a lifetime researching E. coli, um, and he, they explain and spell it out why evolution is impossible. They're not afraid. Another guy um, was uh, Dr. Colin Mitchell, again, PhD in geography from uh, Cambridge University. He'd also studied at Harvard and Oxford for memory. He was an international consultant. He was, uh, he was a geographer. He was consulted by governments around the world on environmental matters. And he, uh, he wrote a book, The Case for Creationism. And um, I've used that book because, again, as, uh, you know, as a brilliant scientist, his work is meticulously referenced to the literature. Powerful support for creationism. Um, then you've got uh, Dr. Lee uh, Spetner, uh, again, PhD in physics from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, probably you know the top university in the US. Um, he taught information and communication theory at John Hopkins University, another top university in the US. Um, and he pub- he's published a couple of books, Not By Chance, uh, Shattering the Modern Theory of Evolution. And uh, he explains, again, the evolution on the basis of uh, genetic mutations, um, how this powerfully refutes the evolutionary theory. Um, he's, I've noticed he's just put a, another book out, too. I, I'm sorry, I just can't remember its name. It's just skipped my mind. Um, on a more local level, uh, Dr. Andrew Snelling, um, he did his uh, honours degree at UNSW, University of New South Wales, PhD, University of Sydney in geology. Uh, he's published uh, a two-volume work of over a 1,000 pages titled Earth's Catastrophic Past, Geology, Creation and the Flood, in which he provides, again, the geological evidence for massive catastrophes in the past. So, again, this material's out there. Again, reference to the peer review literature, extensively re- referenced. Another guy, um, and I've, I've stayed with this uh, fellow as well, Dr. Ariel Roth, uh, PhD in zoology at the University of Michigan, um, and uh, served as chairman and professor of biology at Loma Linda University. Um, he received a number of grants for his research on uh, coral and undersea uh, plants. Uh, and again, another zoologist, and uh, he has written the book 
origins, linking science and scripture. And he provides very powerful uh, evidence for young earth creationists. As a matter of fact, he's another one who has a really good website. Um, if you Googled Ariel uh, A. Roth uh, on creation, um, his website should come up. And um, uh, he has a lot of PowerPoint presentations there that people can use, a lot of photographs. He, again, is a meticulous researcher. Another guy, Dr. Werner Gitt, um, whom I've also met, um, he was a uh, former director uh, of the uh, German Federal Institute of Physics for many, many years. Uh, so again, a top research facility in in Germany, and he is a real a world authority on information theory. And um, he uh, published a book uh, called "In the Beginning Was Information," and he argues very powerfully that information theory refutes evolution. Um, and again, he looks at the codes within DNA and. Uh, and so forth. So here again, these are really top scientists, and they've put the evidence out there for people to read, to to see. But it's the students in our schools and universities aren't being really told that these resources are out there. Unless they hunt for them on Amazon or something like that, they're not going to find them. Another one, Dr. Andy McIntosh, I referred to earlier with his DSC maths. He's put out his book Genesis for today. Um, we talked about uh, Dr. John Hartnett from uh, the University of Adelaide. He's published, uh, co-authored a book um, on the uh, Big Bang uh, theory called Dismantling the Big Bang. Um, in the area of astronomy, Dr. Danny Faulkner, he was a uh, former professor of astronomy and physics at the University of South Carolina in Lancaster, US. Uh, he put out uh, a book, Universe by Design. Again, he's a... Um, uh, a creationist, and he actually points out that some scientists, such as the Nobel Prize-winning chemist Dr. Ridget uh, Smalley, uh, who earned his PhD from Princeton University, um, he became a creationist. And in his public lectures, he states why he now rejects evolution and uh, supports genesis. So here you've got a Nobel Prize-winning chemist rejecting Evolution on the basis of what he's come to understand about chemistry. You know, people uh, don't know about this. You know, we could go on. So you've got crazy statements like the United States Academy of Sciences. They published uh, in 1999 uh, a little booklet uh, statements called Science and Creationism, a view of the National Academy of Sciences. In their second edition, on page 28, the statement claims that scientific consensus around evolution is overwhelming and that no prominent scientists reject evolution. I mean, what we've just been talking about just powerfully refutes that statement. We've got Nobel Prize winners that reject evolution. So I think, you know, the evidence is, is now clearly out there that there are a lot of scientists that support creation. Thanks, John, for that review. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you've been listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr. John Ashton, and John has been discussing the work of scientists who believe and who, like himself, are speaking out about the serious anomalies in evolution. Next week, our conversation will be concerned with the evidence for the existence of an intervening God. This is the second last conversation in this series of conversations. Don't miss it. Bye for now and God bless you. Mm-hmm.